You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, it's a great privilege to be able to uh, enter into this Easter week worshiping God, and it's great to have some visitors with us as well, the hockey team and others that are joining us, and we welcome you. Uh, I would encourage all of you to take the opportunity, since uh, around this time in, in Canada we still have enough of a a vestige of Christendom around that people start thinking about church maybe this time of year. And I would invite you to invite some of your friends and loved ones, neighbors, co-workers to come Good Friday at 10 as uh, Kevin and the worship team have been working on a very important theme uh, having to do with Christ's death. And then on Easter Sunday, it was actually a, a morning this past week when, uh, I don't know if it was the coffee I drank the night before or not, but I woke up and uh, I got up finally because I couldn't sleep, and, and between 4.30 and 6.30, I had the sermon for Easter Sunday figured out. It's not completely done, but uh, I decided I would take a look at some of those resurrection uh, stories, and uh, so I've, I've titled my sermon for next Sunday, Looking for Jesus in All the Wrong Places, and uh, just trust that God will use it next Sunday to touch hearts, so looking for Jesus in all the wrong places. Hey, listen, right now, before we begin the message, I want to encourage you to do something. Take uh, just 30 seconds, turn to someone beside you, and tell them the first ism word that comes to your mind. You know, that, that suffix that ends in ism? Just tell them the first ism that comes with your mind. Take, maybe take time to share a couple back and forth. You've got 30 seconds. <laughs> now, if some of you want to get up and move... <laughs> You might have learned something about the person beside you more than anything else so far. Boy, oh boy. Why do I raise that matter? Well, it's interesting because every time you find a word in English that ends in ISM, it's really actually stemming from ancient Greek. And through ancient Greek, through Latin and French into English, you find all these ism words. And they're powerful words. They often show up in talking about politics or philosophy or, or religion or ideologies of some kind of thing. Very influential words because they sum up an influence, really. And they're powerful words because they're so very much embodied and embedded in our society. In fact, you cannot live in this world without being influenced by anism of some kind, whether you like it or not. And so as we've been looking at the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and we've been talking about his theme, which is all about the church, his view, God's view of the church, Uh, what I I have found and I believe is true is that you cannot help but be influenced in every culture, every generation. The church has been influenced by the spirit of the age, which could be described in terms of all kinds of the isms that we live under and that are surrounding our thinking. And so Paul's talking about how the church is formed, who the church consists of, how the church relates inwardly or outwardly, and yet every practice of the church in every culture and every generation is a contorted and twisted view of experiencing church because we are part of the culture and the isms affect how we do church. And so it should not surprise us that our view and our experience of church is distorted by the spirit of our age, as described by isms. Humanism, individualism, pragmatism, materialism, consumerism, subjectivism, selfism, and you could list many others. 
These are the spirit of our age. And so how we see church and how we are the church, how we be church, how we do church is affected by these things. So to renew our minds, how do you get out of that? Well, you have to come to the scriptures, the Bible, and you have to take off the old isms and try to put on a clear and clean thinking mind to know what God's teaching. You know, it takes a lot of work to prepare a sermon, but if you really think about it, it takes a lot more work to listen to a sermon in the way that God wants us to listen. Too often, we kind of listen to a sermon, we figure, that he's done all the work, I can just sit here passively. But really, when, when you listen to a sermon, you're taking it in, and you're, you're mixing it up with what you think, and something has to go, and something has to be renewed. Something has to come in to replace something that's old and wrong and not right about your thinking. And then you go home, and you have to actually think, okay, how is it that I'm supposed to now live this out? Last week, Doug was talking to us in Ephesians chapter 2 about a very difficult passage. At one point, he said this. He said that people of other faiths pursue their God or gods for a variety of reasons. Christians recognize that the only true God has been the one actively pursuing them even when they were his enemies. Well, in that very statement, there is an incredible uh, discord with the spirit of the age. The isms of our age would say to us that actually we're at the center and that we take the initiative with God. He's just kind of standing waiting for us to come. And uh, that God's always the revealer and we're, we're always the responders in this divine human relation. We underestimate the grace of God and we tend to over, overestimate the role of humanity. And so whether you've grown up in the church, whether you've come to church lots or part of church before or not, it doesn't matter because you're influenced by uh, a bunch of isms that make you think about church a certain way. And without thinking about it, probably this word describes your view of church, and it is a, or about faith and church. It is the word decisionism, which is not a, a made-up word by me. It's decisionism is the idea, very linked to consumerism. The idea is that it somehow really is all up to me. That God kind of has done all he can do, and now it's just up to me. And we are the ones that are the masters of our fate, that we, we choose what we should do, and that we are the ones that decide what are my spiritual needs. I have a, a whole consumeristic approach to how they might be met, and regardless of how I, I meet them or I, I, I choose to meet them, I'm going to be approaching them in a certain way. And, and it's that certain way that you don't realize is influenced by your culture. So you and I, in this culture, are going to approach faith and God and church in a very individualistic, privatized, and thin encounter with Jesus. Some of the words that have been described of this kind of faith encounter has to do with bumper sticker Christianity, consumer Christianity. One that I heard recently was the juvenilization of Christianity. So what do you do with a deformed faith? What do you do with a deformed view of faith and church? Well, you inform it. You inform it with Scripture. And then you reform it according to Scripture. And then you transform it by asking God's Spirit to come and help you live what's actually being taught. And then the power and truth of God is actually able to renew your mind and life. That's the way it works. Inform, reform, transform. You see, because we've been conformed to a pattern of this age, and God says you're going to have to, you're going to, have to be transformed if you're going to be my church. 
That's what he's in the business of doing. A guy by the name of Scott Hagley, Forge Canada, says that the church today is ripe for a counter-formation because we have conformed so much to the pattern of this world and people are hungering after the authentic. See, that's what people hunger after is something authentic. And unfortunately, too often, they're not seeing something authentic in professing Christians or in the church that they have uh, been most accustomed to visiting. Authenticity. A huge need in this is, in, of course, in the area of our togetherness and uh, our sense of community, our body life as the people of God. Doug said something last week that I thought was very important, a profound statement. God is not just adding Gentiles to the church. He is making a new people. It's a profound statement. In other words, God is not just interested in kind of making things bigger, add more people. We need to get that principle at its grassroots level, that the Lord is not just interested in adding more people to his church. He's interested in making a new people, a new people through faith in his son that have an identity in him and in each other and an intimacy in him and in each other. This vertical and horizontal grace that we receive from Christ, we bend it horizontally, and it goes out into the relationships that God calls us to. And the body, the church, is meant to be where it's most visibly and tangibly seen. And so our goal is not simply more people at White Ridge Baptist Church. Our goal is, is this intimacy, this, this incredible new people. So even as we get together this evening at our congregational meeting and we talk about uh, the business of, of the church, new members and other people taking leadership and we have the three teams that are involved in the building initiative at McGillivray Property as we talk about what God's leading us to. It's not about the building. It's about the new people that God is creating. It's about this people because if we cannot sustain a new people formed and fashioned and transformed by the Spirit of Christ so that God's Word and God's ways are seen in us, then I don't really care what kind of building we worship in or get together in. This is radical. This is profound and it's all coming from what Paul is teaching in Ephesians here. You see, what God is doing, you know, I, think, I think sometimes the, the, the language that we have had in the last 50 to 100 years of the church has been in some ways detrimental to the gospel. We have talked so much about, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, it's as though you, you can come to church and all the church is for is for you and your little personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's a consumer approach because if we help you do that, well, that's great, we're doing our job. But if we don't help you, we'll go look somewhere else because there's other churches that might be able to help you. You see, it's not, that's a very narrow view. It's a, it's a vertical, but it's not a horizontal view of the grace of God. God intends you to attach you to the body of Christ and that in relationship, you're going to grow. You cannot grow, in fact, in isolation. And that's the amazing thing that God's doing Once separated by race and age and gender and status and income and personality and whatever other things you might want to list that separate human beings from one another, 
once separated by all those things, God takes someone who's put their faith in Christ, places them into his church, and says, Now you are my family, my holy temple, my body. You see, the thing that's amazing and remarkable about the church is that, that it, it, we get together, and outside of this, we maybe never would associate with each other. Normally. The church should be the biggest sociological enigma on the face of the planet in every generation. You know, people are looking for community and authenticity and relationship. They look for it anywhere from bird watching to taekwondo. They look for it on hockey teams. They look for it everywhere. Back in the 70s when Fuller Theological Seminary was growing in in this church growth movement which was taking the church by storm in North America. Guys like Donald McGavern were studying basically sociological principle. And they found out that if you just figure out what homogeneous units look like, you can grow the church. You see, it's like that attracts like. So just figure out what that looks like and you'll grow a church. There's nothing wrong with that. We do like to get together with people that are like us, that have the same interests and common desires and so on. Nothing wrong with that. But you see, when God calls people by grace through Jesus Christ to faith and to to put aside their sin and trust in Him for salvation, He is making a new people. And the new there is new in, in every sense of the word. It's not like the society. And so I I really mean it when when I say that this is this church at church the church is supposed to be the strangest enigma in society should defy every sociological principle because a new people's being formed out of this disconnected group of misfits that in normal society would never be caught doing life together but in the church of Jesus Christ with common denominator being faith in him we are a family and no wonder because of that Paul uses the word mystery to describe the church mystery the church ought to be a mystery to people that are peering in from the outside. Too often, though, we're not a mystery at all. (laughs) We're just an extension of another group in society. And so, that's exactly the word that Paul uses in chapter 3. If you turn with it, uh, into your Bibles with it, there's a pew Bible ahead of you if you want to turn there. If you've got an iPhone or a pad or something and you want to turn there, Uh, chapter 3 of Ephesians. And uh, I want you to count how many times Paul uses the word mystery in just these verses that I'm going to read. And would you stand with me if you're able to this morning and listen to what God has to say to us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, Paul, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, but it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, 
is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which is for ages was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. And God bless his word. You may be seated. You'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins with the words, For this reason... And then he gets off track, and then you'll notice in verse 14, we didn't read that far, but you'll notice in verse 14, he says, for this reason, (laughs) he kind of had a hiccup in there. You know, it's very Paul-ish to do this. Paul kind of starts on a track, and then he gets totally off track, and then he comes back. Well, this is a little sign that for this reason is is really connected to verse 1 and verse 14. And it's really all about the fact that because of God doing this thing in society, calling people out of darkness into light and creating a new people in the church, it says, for this reason, then he goes on in verses 14 to 21 to say, for this reason, I just can't do anything but kneel before the Father and praise Him and pray for this church that's becoming the people of God. And so, so he kind of gets off track. But in the meantime, in verses 2 to 13, he, he wants to expound on this church using this word mystery, as he does uh, four times, I think, in this text. And so let's take a look at what is this mystery. You'll notice in the blue insert that's in your bulletin, blue piece of paper, you can follow along. Paul is answering four questions about the mystery. He says, what is the mystery of Christ? How was the mystery made known? How is the mystery made plain? And then what does God intend to accomplish through making the mystery known? Let's go through those four questions quickly. First of all, in biblical language, what is mystery? We might think of mystery as kind of a puzzle yet to be figured out, like a Sherlock Holmes approach or an Agatha Christie novel. It's a, it's a mystery that's being solved. But in the Bible, that's not the way mystery is used. In the Bible... A mystery was a secret, but it was beyond human comprehension until God chose to reveal it. And then it was absolutely knowable. That's what mystery is in the Bible. A good example of this is in in Daniel chapter 2. There's an incredible passage in Daniel chapter 2 where King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, has tormenting dreams. And in the middle of these dreams, he doesn't know what they mean. So he actually makes an edict. He says, says, if one of my wise men in Babylon cannot tell me what I dream and what it means, I'm going to kill them all. Chapter 2 of Daniel. And and so Daniel and his three friends are, are, are just listening to this happening. They go to prayer. And as they're praying, God says, I can tell you what his dreams are all about. 
So Daniel tells one of the servants of the king, he gets a hearing with King Nebuchadnezzar. He stands before King Nebuchadnezzar, and here's what the king says. The king says this to Daniel, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? 2.26. And I love Daniel's response. He says in verse 27, King, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. And I love this next line. But there is a God in heaven. Isn't that great? There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown you, O king Nebuchadnezzar, what is going to happen in the days to come. And then Daniel goes ahead and tells him what he dreamt and what it means. Here is God, here is God invading a pagan nation through these young Hebrew men and telling the king how the living God wants a relationship with you and your kingdom. It's incredible. But it tells us, it tells us that the mystery in the Bible is God's domain. God's the one that reveals what mysteries are all about. Just like he did around the time when Jesus was born, how he took a few wise men and he said, follow that star. And he told them about the mystery of Christ who was to be born. Paul uses the word mystery seven times in Ephesians. And he's talking about the greatest mystery of all, of God making Jesus Christ known and forming a new people in Jesus Christ. Verse 6 is perhaps the best definition of what the mystery is all about. Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Notice the key word in there, three words, times together. That's the key in the mystery. The mystery is the church being a people, Jew and Gentile, Jewish and all other ethnos of the whole earth together. Together. There's actually three Greek words that, that, tr- that come to translate in English together in these three ways, and I can't pronounce them. But it means basically having the same inheritance, having part of the same body, and sharing in the same promises. Three Greek words, and there's a prefix, S-U-N, that describes the togetherness. So Paul's saying that, that the church on earth, all ethnos, all people groups, God is making them into a people who are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of the same promises in Christ. And that's the mystery. It's this double grace, this vertical grace, and this horizontal grace that forms a new people in, the, in, the, in faith in Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, how was the mystery made known? Verses 1 to 5, Paul in verse 3 says that the mystery of Christ and his church was made known by revelation. That's the key word. It's the, where we were to get the word apocalyptic from. That means revelation. So Paul is saying that there's no way that you can understand this mystery unless it's by revelation. God's showing it to you. And Paul's thinking certainly of his own conversion, how he came to meet Christ on the road to Damascus, and God revealed himself to Paul. Verse 5, Paul uses the same word that, that is the idea of being made known, but at this time he says that in the past it was not made known in previous generations, but now it has been revealed, verse 5. That's the same word, apocalypsis. 
It's been made known. It's been revealed by the Spirit of God to God's holy apostles and prophets. So do we get there? The picture that get, we get through this is that so all through the Old Testament, hundreds and hundreds of years, prophets and priests and kings of Israel trying to understand the mysteries of God, the prophecies in the Old Testament. When will the Messiah, the Anointed One, come? What kind of people will He form? How will the end of the age come about? What is God and His purposes all about? And He's saying that until Christ came and He raised up apostles and prophets, until that time, it was not made known. But now it has been made known by revelation through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles and prophets whose, whose word we have written to guide us as a light in darkness. That's how it's made known. Let's move on to ask the third question. How was the mystery made plain? Again, the language in your, in your Bible is one is made known, the other one is made plain, difference. One being made known means that in a general way, how are people supposed to know how to have a relationship with God, how to be forgiven of their sin, how to, to know that they can have eternal life? But now, how is it applied individually so that individuals can see it? Paul says in verse 7 that he was given the task of making this mystery plain, understandable, to cause to see. The word is fotizo, where we get our word photograph and photosynthesis. And it all has to do with illumination and light and shining. So how is it that people come to see, have the light of knowledge, understand what has been made known? How does that happen? You know, I think to, to understand the, the answer to that question, let's take a look at Paul. And like, let's take a look at Paul's self-image. There's, there's three things that Paul says about how he sees himself. First, first of all, verse 1, Paul says that he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. The word is desmios. It means a captive, a bound one in chains. And in fact, Paul, when he wrote this letter, was in chains. He was in Rome under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier. Yet he doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome. He says a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Do you notice how your circumstances don't need to dictate your self-image? That if you're, if you're in Jesus Christ, if you know him, he, he, he dictates your self-image. And then secondly, notice in verse 7 he says that he, he calls himself a servant of the gospel. The word is diakonos, a deacon. A deacon is a servant, a slave. It's the common word used in the Greek language for the common house servant or slave. And Paul says, that's not a bad thing. He says, I was made this by the gift of God's grace. He says, I got a gift from God. He made me a slave. Isn't that wonderful? Paul's perspective is radical. And then the third thing he says in verse 8, he says that although I'm less than the least of all God's people. You know, the thing that's interesting here is that I can't even pronounce the word in Greek because it's a brand new word. Paul made it up. Now tell me, if someone is the least, is there anything lower than that? <laughs> I mean, in the English language, you'd have to go to this. I'm the leaster. 
You see, that's what Paul's doing. He says, I'm less than the least. Some people think that he was making a, a play on his own name. Paul, Paulos, means small one. But likely, he was referring to his own past. We get that in, in Corinthians 15.9. Here's what he says. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. And I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, Paul, now that he's come to see how precious the church is to Jesus, the bride of Christ, he says, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I spent so many years persecuting that which I am now a minister of. That might be part of the history here. But then in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And the actual word is chief. He goes on and he says, But Christ Jesus, might, that, might, that he might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You see, Paul, Paul's saying, I am the least of the apostles. I'm less than the least of all God's people, but I'm, I'm, the, I'm the greatest. I'm the chief of sinners. Well, why is he boasting in this? He's doing that because... He says, if, if I can be saved, anybody can be saved. He's doing it because he, he's saying that he's using himself as a display of God's unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe and receive eternal life. It's incredible. What a self-image. Paul could embrace it, a prisoner, a slave, a less than the least, because he was... In the grace of God. He held his head high because he rejoiced in Christ and the salvation. And he, he made it his goal in life to, to unpack this mystery, to make this mystery known and to cause people to see it. He prayed it that way in, in Ephesians 1.18. Lord, that, that, that we might have our eyes open, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, same word, to make plain, to cause to see. So this question, this third question is, is how is the mystery made plain? How do you come to see this mystery for yourself? Then the, the answer is, it's through people like Paul. People that had a self-image that stems from Christ, being a prisoner of Christ, a servant of the gospel, a less than the least. A person that, that's the person that God uses. A humble servant filled with his power, amazed at his grace and available for his use. Kevin referred to in his prayer today in the, in the worship time, Kevin referred to two of our members in our church who lost loved ones recently. And I tell you, it was, it was, a, it was a fascinating week for the pastoral staff who've been walking some of this through with these guys and to hear how God is at work. And, and it, it, within a week's time, we hear about these two men who are walking out with loved ones who are on the brink of death. And that within, within days, in fact, within hours of having an opportunity to, to just open their mouths and to share about Jesus Christ and about why he came and to call that person to pray a prayer of repentance and faith, within hours, in both cases, their loved one died. And I say to Doug and Kevin, I said, this is why I signed up. 
This is why I, this is why I, this is what makes me get up in the morning. The, the, the knowledge that God, the living God, is still saving souls. Don't you ever think that someone is beyond hope? As I have been inclined to think sometimes. Someone I've prayed for for years. Don't you ever think that someone doesn't die on their deathbed before they die, call out to Christ, and even in that deathbed sometimes, as in one case that we referred to, have the opportunity to bring forth the fruit of repentance, actually do something different with their life, reconcile relationships. That's what God's all about, you, you see. So how is it that God makes plain this mystery? It's just that simple. It's a normal, average Christian just praying and asking God to show them where and when they should open their mouths and then just pointing them in the direction and speaking the word of truth into their hearts. And then the Holy Spirit, having prepared that heart, is, is responding. That's, that's hallelujah moment. That's good news. Finally, what does God intend to accomplish through making the mystery known? You might be surprised at the answer that he gives in verses 10 and 11. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the fourth time in this short letter that Paul uses the word heavenly realms. The first time in chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about how uh, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly realms. The second time, he's talking about how Christ has been seated in the heavenly realms. Chapter 1, verse 20. The third time is chapter 2, verse 6, where it says that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And now in this fourth occurrence, he is saying that God is... In this, three, in this beyond this three-dimensional earth that we live in, in those heavenly realms where demons and devils and angels do their bidding and all their business, this, this fourth dimension that you cannot tear back and look into because we live in a three-dimensional world, in those heavenly realms, God is saying that through the church, through what we do church-like, those beings are looking down and marveling at the wisdom of God. This is a profound text. Profound teaching here. One author says it this way. He says that, imagine a cosmic drama. The theater is history. The stage is the world. The actors are the church. The writer is God who directs and produces the drama. And the audience, cosmic beings. Rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. And then he adds this. The history of the Christian church is the graduate school for angels. The history of the church is the graduate school for angels. They're learning from us. They're learning about the wisdom of God. Taking this discombobulated, disconnected people group on earth, bringing them together in one family and saying, you're my people, you're my bride, you're my holy temple. That's impossible except for the grace of God. And so that's why it matters how you get along with someone else in the church. That's why it matters that you respect and love and work through to forgiveness if there's been a wrong that's why it matters how we get along on committees and, 
and how we do business and how we seek vision and how we pray through matters and, and how we learn to fellowship. Because you see, it's not just the watching world in this three-dimensional world watching. It's this fourth dimension. It's this cosmic group that is watching. And God wants them to marvel at his wisdom because of it. I read this past week about the Belgian evangelical mission many years ago under the leadership of a guy named Johann Lucas. And, and in Belgium at the time, the, the, the gospel was not penetrating their the church was not growing, and then they saw that, this mission saw that as they studied the scriptures, they weren't doing community. They weren't learning togetherness. They didn't understand the body of Christ. And so this guy convinced a group of Americans and Belgians and, and, and Dutch people and so on, Christians, to gather, and they met and they decided they would live in the same house for seven months. They lived in the same house for seven months and the, the cultural and the personality and all the stuff that was different caused such friction. Friction between each other. Guess what had to happen? Either the thing was going to blow up or they were going to get on their knees humbly and, and learn to love each other and they did that. They got on their knees. They prayed it through. They reconciled. They worked through issues and it was exactly after that time they account for it in history. After that time, the fruit of the ministry started to happen. And people were amazed. How is it that you guys get along? How is it that you love each other like that? You see, there's a spiritual dynamic that is released in the body of Christ only when we do this togetherness thing, this community of faith, in spite of all the differences that we bring to the table. I'm going to ask Kevin and the worship team to come. And I've given you in that blue insert some tough questions to talk about at home or to look at with your life group. And uh, I, I ask you to ponder these questions. How is it that we can grow in practical ways as a church in making him known? And how we can be servants of the gospel like Paul to make plain the message to others? How is God's wisdom on display through the church and who is it that's watching? May God bless us together as we learn that.